0: Over the last few years, a new section of our economy has surged, what's now known as the creator economy. Creators are individuals that are directly reaching consumers and participating in generating economic value through mechanisms previously unused. Now, The idea of creating content online isn't anything new, but what we've seen through trends over the last five years, and a shock to the system in COVID, has caused unparalleled momentum for the category. We're now moving to a phase in this economy where it's not just individuals sharing existing skills online. Platforms are resegmenting and categorizing those skills in new ways, whether it's NFTs or influencers, and in new business models. Lee Jin is one of the most thoughtful individuals on what's really going on in this space. Formerly a consumer investor at Andreessen Horowitz, Lee's recently founded her own firm, Atelier Ventures, To specifically focus on all the emerging activity in this space. In this conversation, we chatted about what's going on in the creator economy today, how it was born through disruptive innovation, and what we're going to see in the decade to come. Welcome, Lee. It's a pleasure to have you on.
1: Thanks so much for having me on the show.
0: Yeah, Lee, excited to have you on the show today to dive deep into the passion and creator economy, uh, a space that you're Uh, incredibly thoughtful about um, and and have a lot of perspectives on. But before we jump in, tell folks listening just a little bit more about your background.
1: Totally. Uh, So Right now I'm a full-time investor uh, and I have a fund called Atelier that I'm um, actively investing out of into the passion economy and the creator economy. And prior to this fund existing, I spent four years at Andreessen Horowitz where I was on the consumer investing team, um, investing in consumer marketplaces, social, any sort of consumer software category that had network effects. And today, uh, besides investing, I'm also kind of like a part-time creator and very much living my own thesis. So I also have a podcast, a newsletter, actually two newsletters, free and paid, Um, I operate a website called Side Hustle Stack, which compiles a bunch of different platforms that folks can use to find income generating platforms um, in order to supplement their incomes. And I have a TikTok account. Uh, So very much like doing a lot of creative things in addition to investing as well.
0: Yeah, so let's let's unpack some of those. There's I think there's something really special going on right now um, in in kind of this future of work space. When people thought about future of work over the last few years, it was pretty common to think of vertical labor marketplaces, right? So platforms that democratize access to work and and connected employers and employees at scale. Um, but now we've gone one step further, right? With platforms actually enabling individuals to be, you know, solopreneurs, right? Monetize their creativity. Some of the examples you just alluded to. Let's start by unpacking the context of what's going on right now in the world. And it's, you know, I think especially for outsiders, it's a seemingly subtle shift, but it has significant implications.
1: Mm -hmm. Right. So I think when you mentioned that it was common to think of vertical labor marketplaces in the past, I think there were two classes of that that were especially prevalent. One was full-time labor marketplaces. So marketplaces like Indeed, uh, cetera, that connected workers to potential full-time employment opportunities. And that very much reflects the state of work as it used to be, which is that you would get 100% of your revenue as a worker from a single employer, a single company. Um, so that was one class of marketplaces. And then I think the other model that gained a lot of prevalence over the last decade was the gig marketplace. So these were marketplaces for freelance, independent work um, flexible work but they really centered around very easily commoditizable services Um, and so you had these two types of vertical labor marketplaces in the past and the the major evolution of that Um, which I've called the passion economy, is this combination of flexibility, but also creativity. So now there's marketplaces that are enabling people to not only work on their own terms, um, on their own schedule, and do work that is entirely independent of any one single employer, but they're also enabling people to express themselves creatively, to really think of the the, the specific type of service or product that they would like to offer. Um, as an individual, which is different from everything else that's available in the market, and to, uh, I always use the term, monetize individuality. So the new marketplaces that I'm seeing in the passion economy are models that are empowering individuals to monetize their individuality, to offer a very unique product or service that really no one else can offer because it's so tied to who they are. Um, so that's the major shift that I'm seeing. It's it's very distinct from traditional employment models where you would get a full-time job at a company and do that thing for years. And it's also very distinct from the gig economy model as well.
0: And so if you're an individual participating in the passion economy, why is it easier than ever before to get off the ground and monetize? Is it because markets are better? Tools are getting more readily available? You know, What allows people to more actively participate in the passion economy?
1: So I think there's a combination of factors. One is definitely that new platforms are arising that take on a lot of the different business functions and building blocks to help these folks monetize and discover customers and run all of the admin and operations pieces of their businesses. So historically, I think it, it could have been possible for people to participate in the passion economy, for instance, if they were to set up their own business and offer whatever unique service or product that they wanted to offer. But All of the functions of running that business from customer acquisition to marketing to um, production of that particular service or product to like accounting back office stuff, it would have been things that they would have had to do on their own or hire for um, or figure out how to do, you know, like marketing on the internet or whatever and now a lot of new platforms are rising that help these aspiring entrepreneurs to do all of those things in a very turnkey way without having to hire additional resources or go figure it out on their own so what that infrastructure looks like now um, a lot of times is like people are utilizing these large horizontal social networks for customer acquisition and discovery then taking that audience and trying to um, get greater ownership of that audience or converting that audience into like a more engaged customer base through maybe a newsletter or like a free email list that they sign up for or a podcast or something else. And then from there converting those audience members into actual paying customers. And there's a bunch of companies that are helping people do that and helping them to create like products or services that can actually be monetized. Um, And examples of those would be like Substack or uh, Patreon, and, and there's a bunch of others as well. So at all levels of this entrepreneurship journey, there's now more tools than ever before for like any aspiring entrepreneur's disposal to be able to easily operate their business without relying on a ton of external resources.
0: And so you have the tools in place, and obviously that has a direct correlation on the scale and potential for this new economic activity, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And then I think, so that's all on the supply side, everything that I just outlined. I think on the demand side, on the customer side, there's a number of other factors too, which is that customers are now more comfortable than ever purchasing from individuals rather than institutions. Um, I think you also have the fact that like social networks have reached scale in the past decade and thereby connected the entire world and made customers aware of all of these other individuals that they might want to support and purchase from. Um, so I think on the on the demand side, there's also a con- like a, a set of factors that have made consumers more um, willing and eager to purchase various products and services from these passion economy entrepreneurs.
0: And so when you have these factors converging on the demand side and the supply side, it, it speaks to the foundation of what's being set up here for scale, right? Scale, potential growth and economic activity. The academic way to think about that is the theory of disruptive innovation. And I want to talk about that theory as it relates to the passion economy. But before we do that, for our listeners that may not be familiar with the theory, can you give a quick synopsis of the theory of disruptive innovation?
1: Yeah, sure. So people especially in silicon valley tend to overuse the term disruption and use it in a lot of contexts in which like clay christensen did not actually intend it intend for the term to be used Um, so like what disruptive innovations are not is just like any innovation that makes a good product better and instead when he Uh, defined the term disruption and wrote about disruption theory, what he was actually talking about was uh, innovations that are either entering at the bottom of the market and serving a lower profit segment or innovations that are targeting customers who previously just could not afford or access a product or service at all. So he broke this down into two types of disruption, Um, new market disruption, which is like targeting those customers who previously couldn't access or afford a product Product or service, and then low-end disruption, which was targeting the overserved customers—customers customers whom the incumbents had just like evolved to offer way more features or functionality than what most people ended, actually needed—and then the low-end disruptions would meet those needs of the overserved customers and come in at the bottom of the market in return for lower prices. So that's actually the, the textbook definition of disruption um it's it's definitely a term that gets thrown around a lot but it's pretty precise in how clay Christensen defined it
0: and so when you apply it to the passion economy we take both those elements new market disruption and low-end disruption let's go back lee to what you were talking about with respect to supply and demand elements of the passion economy you've got workers on one side consumers on the other i want to talk about what's going on with the workers first you've written something pretty interesting before which is Workers are effectively competing against non-production, and it's pretty counterintuitive. So I want you to unpack what that means on the worker side, and then we'll do the same on the consumer side.
1: Yeah, precisely. So I think the piece that you're referring to is um, an essay that I published last summer called "How the Passion Economy Will Disrupt Media, Education, and Countless Other Industries," which is on my Substack, and. Yeah, I I tried to sort of look at the passion economy through the lens of disruption theory and I realized that the passion economy idea is really um like it, it there's there's something really different about it versus how Clay Christensen originally conceived of disruption. So in Clay's like textbook description of disruption theory and all of the cases that he studied, he really honed in on the consumer side of the equation. So customers that previously couldn't access something, customers that were previously overserved by the incumbent. But what was really particular about the passion economy is the producer side a lot of the participants in the passion economy are folks who previously couldn't produce something they couldn't produce it because there was a gatekeeper in the industry or maybe because the tools to produce that thing were just really inaccessible or expensive to them Um, and these new platforms that were arising in the passion economy actually helped these non-producers to become producers so i think some of the examples that i gave in the piece were like um The online course platforms like Teachable or Podia, they're allowing experts to monetize their knowledge in a completely new way online and thereby actually expanding the market of online course creators than what had previously existed like before these platforms existed to create an online course a lot of these instructors were doing in-person classes or retreats or whatever or maybe they just didn't even package up their knowledge into a course at all um and so there was an there's basically this um transition from non-producer to producer that these platforms like Teachable and Podia and many others are enabling. And that's happening across different creator verticals too. Um, For instance, Patreon enables a lot of independent creators like video creators or podcasters to be able to sustain their livelihoods as, as creators. Whereas probably before, a lot of them would have dropped out of their creative pursuits because they there was just no way for them to earn money from it and to actually be a producer in that industry. So I, yeah, I talked about this concept of passion economy, um, passion economy platforms um, as those enabling non-producers to more easily become producers.
0: And how about the consumer side? Same thing, right? Your products and services effectively competing with non-consumption. How do you think about that side?
1: Yeah, so the consumer side more closely mirrors what Clay Christensen had originally described in his work, which is that um, on on the consumption side, there were customers who either couldn't afford or couldn't access something before or they were overserved by an existing offering. And in the passion economy, what's happening is because new producers are entering the market, like new course creators, new creatives on YouTube, um, like New podcasters who are being who are able to create a podcast now, whereas they couldn't before these new producers are creating entirely new products and offerings for the market. And thus they're serving these previously overserved consumers or previous non consumers, because there's now a wider range of choices than ever before. So consumers, instead of just choosing To consume what had existed before, whether that was like a traditional university course or um, purchasing a newspaper subscription from a media company, they now have the ability to choose a creator-led offering that is oftentimes cheaper and more convenient and like specifically designed to align to their preferences. So an example of this that I often point to is like um, the whole like email newsletter industry, especially with Ben Thompson being one of the pioneers of this industry, like I think of Ben Thompson's Stratechery as an example of a low-end disruption uh, for people who are interested in technology and media and business strategy. Before Stratechery existed, people who were interested in those topics probably just subscribed to one of a handful of publications like the Wall Street Journal or The Economist, which Overserved their needs because these publications in- included like a bunch of other types of content that they weren't interested in, um, or maybe they just didn't purchase anything at all because there was nothing specifically aligned to that particular like topic of in-depth tech analysis. And so, Stratagery is entering at the bottom of the market to serve those overserved consumers or like converting previous non-consumption to consumption.
0: And so one of the things that happens is the basis of competition changes in the passion economy, right? So in some ways, products and services in the passion economy aren't as good, but in some ways they're markedly better. Let's unpack that a bit more and use an example. You know, we can go back to the events business. We were talking about that, you know, a bit earlier. Let's use that as an example to pressure test this logic.
1: So... Uh, going back to Clay Christensen's ideas, he basically introduces this concept of um, a change in the basis of competition. And he says that a key hallmark of a disruptive technology is that there's a shift in the basis of competition. So it's not that like the incumbent is worse and the disruptor is better. There's no like strict better or worse hierarchy when it comes to disruption. It's It's that the basis of competition is actually changing. And this is why a lot of incumbents just neglect to realize the power of potential disruptors. It's it's because they're competing on, on a completely different basis. So an example of this would be virtual events and how v- virtual events platforms may actually be a disruptive threat to the traditional events business offline. Um, and so in, in the traditional world, you would have offline conferences, people are meeting each other live, you'd gather in a, high, a giant like hotel, conference area, et cetera. And when you think about the virtual world and everything that we've experienced during COVID and have probably attended a lot of these like online virtual events, um, the basis of competition is actually changing. So if we're if we're measuring virtual events by the old basis of competition, like people might think they're worse because the quality may not be as consistent or high, um, the opportunities to meet other attendees, you're never going to get that that like closeness that you get from just like sitting next to someone at a real life event and turning over to them and like starting a a conversation that way. But along a different basis of competition, virtual events may actually be better because they're cheaper, they're more convenient, you don't have to travel. Um, There's like new features that virtual events can offer that an offline event could never offer. For instance, you could browse everyone's profile and hone in on exactly the right person that you wanna to talk to rather than just like haphazardly networking in real life and bumping into people. And so these, these features that a virtual events platform can offer are just markedly different from the offline what offline events could offer. And so that means v- virtual events are actually a disruptive model versus offline conferences, that the entire basis of competition is changing.
0: With every transformation, there's slow and consistent progress and then impact seemingly explodes overnight. And I'm gathering from our discussion that we're not only at an interesting point in the passion economy's life cycle, but now is really the decade where creatorship is gonna take off. I know you have some perspectives on how COVID serves as a catalyst to this. So let's talk about that first.
1: Yeah, I'm gonna answer this really interesting question through the lens of disruption again. So going back to what I had said about non-producers becoming producers um, as enabled by passion economy platforms and tools, I think COVID is a really special moment because a lot of folks who used to be producers or used to earn income a certain way, that source of income is now taken away from them because of job loss or job insecurity or whatever have you or if they had been participating in some sort of offline type of work, they're now at this crossroads where they need to figure out how to transform that source of revenue into um, something that doesn't pose a COVID risk and is entirely virtually based. And so you have a huge base of folks who are wanting to become producers who may not be producers now catalyzed by COVID. And so there's a huge contingent of the population now that is like kind of ready and like eager to participate in this entirely new line of virtual creative work who previously weren't producing in that way. So on the supply side, COVID is a huge accelerant and a catalyst because it means that there's a lot of producers all of a sudden who are looking for ways to become productive, to earn income through novel channels. And then on the consumption side, there's now on consumers are going through much the same stuff like they're experiencing job loss or insecurity in their income they might have tighter budgets than before they might have different needs than than before because their habits have totally changed and their day-to-day schedules have totally changed Um, maybe they're not socializing in real life anymore so they're in need of entertainment or whatever else Um, and so you have a large base of consumers who are looking for products and services that are meeting their very new needs. So these are there, there's just a huge opportunity for new market disruption now because these consumers are open to consuming new products and services that they hadn't before, um, or maybe like their existing things that they were consuming before are, are now, um, out of their budget. And so they're looking for a more inexpensive option. So to give an example of what I actually mean by this and to translate it to um, terms that are less academic, I think the market for education has radically changed because of COVID. So on the producer side, you have a lot of people with expertise and skills who are now looking to supplement their income or to, to make a living through teaching various skills online because online education is like kind of the only type of education that exists right now. There's no offline education. So you have a huge swath of folks who are now looking to create courses or somehow offer their expertise online. So that's the producer side. On the consumer side, you have a large base of folks who are looking for education um, and they're looking for education that is cheaper than what had been offered at traditional educational institutions before because now everything is virtual, they feel like they shouldn't have to pay the same prices for as their previous like in-person tuition or maybe they're looking to get reskilled and learn new s- skills in order to better equip them for jobs of the future. So you have a huge market of consumers who are hungry for new educational solutions. And so when that meets when those two things meet, um, there's just like a huge market for alternative online-based education now.
0: So there's four major implications, right, of when we when we think through the passion economy's disruptive potential. We've we've talked a ton about you know disruption, um, but there there are some pretty interesting specific implications you've talked about before, and I want to unpack. Uh, we don't have to unpack all of them, but I want to unpack some of them. So the four that you've listed before are you know one breadth of incumbent industries under attack. Two, how to think about the TAM of the passion economy. And, and we'll get into that one, a little bit of difficulties on how to quantify. Third, the spectrum of success in the space. And then fourth, very specifically, who is gonna build for this new economy, right? Whether it's startups, incumbents, et cetera. Uh, let's start with the first one, right? Breadth of industries under attack. How far does the passion economy scope extend? How do you think about that?
1: I think it extends into any industry where the service or the product is not viewed as a commodity but where the consumer really cares about the individual who is creating that product or service. People often conflate the passion economy with the creator economy. um, And I want to just emphasize that I actually view them pretty distinctly. So in my mind, the creator economy is actually a subset of the passion economy. The passion economy is this broad umbrella comprised of all sorts of different industry verticals but the commonality is that it's non commoditized work and the consumer cares about the specific individual involved in producing that piece of work. Definitely, the creator economy is a subsegment of that because um, creators are offering, like, are translating their individuality into the content that they're creating, and the consumers of that content really care about the specific individual whose content they're watching. But there's so many different industry verticals where that passion economy um, characteristic that I just outlined is in play. I think it, like, so many different industries are at risk of disruption by passion economy businesses because at the end of the day, the consumers care about the specific individual that's producing that thing. Um, And that spans from education uh, and like schooling all the way from like, K through 12 to adult continuing education. Um, I think it touches definitely media um, because most consumers do care who they're, about the producer of the media that they're consuming. I think it touches like fitness and personal training um, and a bunch of other industries. I I would emphasize that I think it's the passion economy is just this totally new economic movement that empowers individuals over institutions. And that's not unique to any industry vertical. It touches so many different industries.
0: And how do you think about the market size and the market potential, right? uh, Clay Christensen has a pretty um, a pretty famous sentiment, which is, you know, for every new disruptive innovation, um, it's really difficult to think about sizing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but give some heuristics on how you how you are thinking about sizing. So, if we wanted a relative ballpark of you know how large of an opportunity this actually is, you know, what are some of the guideposts that we would use?
1: Yeah, I've tried to approach the market sizing question in a number of ways, and I get this question all the time from other investors or from founders who are trying to create like a TAM slide for their pitch deck, and the response that I always give them is it just it cannot even be analyzed like the TAM is just completely unknowable because we're talking about new market disruption and markets that don't even exist yet just cannot be analyzed. Um, Like we're talking about people who used to not be producers entering the industry and becoming producers through passion economy models. And then there's a large contingent of non-consumers who are now becoming consumers because there's better offerings available or they're cheaper for them or they're more tailored to them. And all of that is like latent underneath the surface and it just is not reflected in current TAM numbers. And like what he does give as a guidance is that the market for non-consumers usually vastly exceeds what is already being consumed so if we think about a disruptive innovation in the media world like there's a much bigger base of non-consumers than current consumers i know that's a really unsatisfactory answer so i'll, I'll give another answer too i think um another way to approach tam is thinking through how many individuals in the world can potentially make a living this way by going direct to consumer, by packaging their individuality into a product or service? I think most individuals in the world actually would prefer to be self-employed rather than to be an employee. I think in the US, I've read something like upwards of 70% of folks have expressed that they would actually prefer to be self-employed than to be an employee at a company. So on the supply side, you have a huge base of folks who would actually prefer to make a living this way. And then on the consumer side, I think there's a huge base of consumers who want to consume and pay for creator-led products and services. So that's my second answer for TAM. And then my third answer for TAM is there's been, folks who have tried to there's a couple of market sizing estimates floating around on the internet right now one is from signal fire the other one that i commonly reference is from mighty networks and they both try to have a market sizing for what is the current market size of online creators Um, and the signal fire estimate is like 50 million people i think around the world today are creators but the Mighty Networks number is like 300 million plus. So they're an order of magnitude different from each other. And the reason why they're an order of magnitude off is because they're defining creator slightly differently. Like the creator definition as used by Mighty Networks is like it encompasses like online bloggers, um, Facebook community admins and uh, moderators, um, people who, who have self-published books, et cetera. So like any type of digital entrepreneur is encompassed in that larger number. Whereas I think the smaller number just includes folks who've built up an audience on social media. But I actually, I agree with the larger number more because I think the, the scope of people who are able to make a living through the passion economy includes anyone who has influence of any kind and who has reached to consumers of any kind. Not just through social media.
0: So on one hand, if you have folks on kind of the left-hand side saying, you know, there's big appetite to, um, you know, to be self-employed or to work on, you know, our own 70 plus percent as you were citing, and then on the other side, you've got you know folks that have appetite and purchasing power, you know, to purchase from these uh, from these folks. How do you think about increasing probability of success? if you're a participant in the passion economy? What are the types of things and what are the types of mechanics you should be thinking about on the producer side to increase your probability of success?
1: Yeah, I I think on the producer side, each individual creator, solopreneur, passion economy participant, whatever you wanna call them. By the way, there's no great like one size fits all term (laughs) for producers in the passion economy. I've been using the term creator, but people refer to them as all sorts of things. I think for creators, you kind of have to adopt the mindset of a founder of a startup. So identifying what is the market demand? What does the market need in terms of like, what are consumers even looking for? Um, and then thinking through, how do I deliver that value to consumers? So it's not just about, um, figuring out something that you want to do and trying to like do that thing and try to like put a price tag on it. I think it actually has to start with the consumer side and thinking through what do consumers want and need and how much are they willing to pay for it and going through very much like the entrepreneurship thought process, um, and strategy process of like determining what is a fruitful market for me to focus on and how do I find those customers? How do I create and package an offering that is compelling to them?
0: You have a firm thesis, and it's the fourth kind of point of, of the major implications of of the passion economy's disruptive potential, which is startups are going to build in this economy versus incumbents. We we talked a, a little bit about that before, right, in terms of incumbents often not realizing that the basis of competition has shifted. is Is that what primarily underlies your thesis that startups are going to build in this economy versus incumbents, or it's, you know, it's other elements as well that we haven't talked about?
1: Yeah, so I... I am very much um, leaning on Clay Christensen's analysis of a ton of different industries that have been disrupted in the past. Um, and through that, uh, also hypothesizing that it's going to be startups that are going to be building in this new economy. So I mean, the whole like genesis of disruption theory was Clay Christensen wondering why, time and time again, these large incumbents who have unlimited resources weren't responding to disruptive threats. And he basically says that, you know, it's not that they're dumb or they're not well-run or anything like that. It's actually because they are very well-run and they're very analytical and they think logically that they tend to tend to ignore these disruptive threats because per any sort of like, logical business analysis, these markets that are disruptive, they initially look too small. They initially look like they're they're much lower profitability than what the incumbent is already doing. Um, and they just they look like they're a lesser priority by any major like business KPI. And so the seductive logic that he outlines is that large companies typically only respond to disruptive disruptive technology by waiting until the market is large enough to be interesting, at which point it's too late for them to enter that market. And the the upstart has already, you know, built such a large brand or had have such a large base of customers that it's usually too late. And so I see that happening today as well um, with a lot of the platforms um and and the new startups that are arising like usually the biggest competitive threat that the founders and that i believe are, are going to pose a threat to these new startups is not the incumbent um, it's not like the large social networking platform that's a public company deciding to introduce subscription newsletters onto the platform the next day the disruptive like the, the threat for these startups is actually just another startup realizing that this is an opportunity and fast following. Usually the incumbents are pretty slow moving.
0: Lee, well, as we round out the conversation, um, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't highlight uh, your new fund, right? You just announced a new fund that's going to be focused on the topics, all the topics we discussed today. And one of the interesting elements that you, you shared with me is the core mission of the fund, right, which is really increasing the opportunity and expanding the middle class of, of uh, creators in this passion economy. Uh, I want you to do two things, right? Kind of in our, in our last question here, which is, you know, a you had a recent piece in HBR uh, that talked about some of the specifics, right? Of really, you know, how to expand the middle class of, of creatorship and, and, you know, for producers in the passion economy. Um, and then we'd love for you to tell us a little bit more, you know, about your fund as we round up.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Yes, correct. So I, I have this fund now that I'm actively investing out of. And my mission for this fund is how do we rebuild the middle class and create more opportunities for people to earn money in ways that are non-exploitative and give people a path to upward mobility? And as a result of that mission, a lot of the startups and platforms that I'm backing are in the passion economy where they are either marketplaces or SaaS platforms or whatever building block uh, that a potential entrepreneur or a passion economy participant would need in order to be successful in their businesses. So the types of business models that are represented in my portfolio range from marketplaces where it's a turnkey platform, where a worker can sign up, um, immediately get connected to customers and just start performing that work, to SaaS platforms that are helping people get up and running and start their own business, to new creator tools that help people to create something in the first place. Um, But basically I'm supporting all of the building blocks of this new economy and helping, and, and my mission, my guidepost is like, how does every startup that I back create more opportunities for earning money in a way that is more meaningful and fulfilling for people. And um, the piece that you had referenced, the um, creator middle class essay that I published in December in Harvard Business Review, uh, it was really Uh, motivated by a major question that I kept getting after I published a previous blog post um, from when I was still at Andreessen Horowitz. And that blog post was called The Passion Economy and the Future of Work. And this was the original blog post that really introduced the term and the concept of the passion economy and passion economy platforms. And a common response that I would get from that piece was, this sounds amazing. And it's very optimistic. Um, like, I wish that this world could exist. But how many people can actually work in this manner and be successful as a creator in this new economy, it feels like it's really hard to succeed as, you know, a podcaster, YouTuber, whatever have you in these new careers. And there's like a huge power law distribution where the majority of folks are actually making very little income. So you know, even though this piece was really optimistic, like how realistic is it actually? And the piece that I published in December about the creator cradle, cradle middle class was really intended to address that question because I want to see a world in which a large number of folks, not just like thousands of, of top tier creators, but I want to see like millions of people be able to participate in this new economy and to be able to monetize their individuality and creativity. I think that's a much more compelling vision of the world than just if like there's a handful of top tier creators on all of these platforms that are kind of like the successor to yesterday's celebrities. I I don't want to be satisfied with that type of scenario in the world. I actually want to be able to see a path to Millions of people and a significant portion of the population being able to achieve a middle class creator income and so this piece outlined basically 10 different ideas for how we could make that possible and how platforms can design themselves in such a way as to help enable the creator middle class, rather than just funneling all the consumers to the top tier creators.
0: Holy, this was a super interesting conversation. Thanks. Thanks so much for taking the time. And it was really um, it was fascinating to hear your perspective on, on the passion economy and specifically how disruptive innovation applies to it. Um, and it's going to be a lot of fun to watch you invest out of your new fund and, and see all the different opportunities, you know, folks create in this space. So thanks again. Really enjoyed having you on.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This was awesome.